You are now listening to the JFDI Podcast. We're on. This is JFDI. We'll talk about what that stands for in a minute. My <laughs> name's Graham Brown, joined by Hugh Mason. Hello. Hugh, I'm really pleased that you're here. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for initiating this. I think um, there's probably a lot of people out there who, like you and me, starting businesses, trying to make things happen. And I think that's what we want to talk about. Just do it. Yep. You can just fill in F the F bit. Frog and do it. Just yeah. focus well, and do there's it. There's a story there. Let's sort of go back there. And one of the reasons why I'm really pleased to have you here, and we've had a few conversations offline. Um, before I moved to Singapore last year, I don't know who it was, but somebody introduced me to you virtually and said, you've got to get in touch with this guy. If mm. you're going to go to Singapore and start a start, speak to Hugh. I was mm. like, why? Well, he set up JFDI. So he's got right. a bit of a story. And I should correct that. I co-founded JFDI Sorry. with uh, Wong Ming Wing, yeah. uh, who uh, many, many other people will know also in the, in the community here. What was the story with JFDI? When did you set it up? So Meng and I met in 2009. Um, I was at an event organized by a government agency and Meng was up on stage and he just made me laugh. And I thought, I've got to get in touch with this guy. So I Googled his name and I found his Flickr account with loads and loads of pictures of booth babes. You know, those <laughs> girls who are pay, you know, paid yeah. to appear at conferences. And I thought, okay, this is a bit strange. Here's a guy wearing a double you know, suit with a jacket and everything. And we met up and we realized that we were both kind of misfits in Singapore. Meng is Singaporean Chinese, but grew up in Canada and the US started a couple of venture back businesses there and became a business angel like me. Um, when we both arrived, him to see his family, uh, me to bring my family here, we realized there was this kind of gap in Singapore. There was lots of intellectual capital, really smart people. There was lots of financial capital, money coming out of the ground. There still is actually for, for good businesses. But what was missing was social capital. There wasn't a place where people could come together. Uh, they were dying out for, you know, people crying out for somewhere to come, for people who wanted to make things happen. So with a group of other people, we set up a co-working space called uh, a Hacker Space, which is still running. And, Where is uh, that? Where is that? that Kampong Glam. So, right. yeah, if anyone who's not familiar, that's the sort of um, Malay, traditionally Malay area yeah. in Singapore. Um, and um, we had a, a completely privately funded and it, uh, it was just exploded. We were having to kick people out at two o'clock in the morning. We realized that we'd, we'd hit on something really interesting. There's this community of people in Singapore who wanted to make things happen. And we also realized after a few months that there's this kind of Venn diagram you can imagine. There's like in one blob of the Venn diagram, you've got kind of geeks and makers and people that want to experiment with homebrew DNA kits and sous vide cookery and, you know, making their own whatever machine. And then you've got kind of entrepreneurs who want to make startups and stuff happen. And those two things overlap, but they're not the same. So early in 2010, I think, the opportunity came up to set up the first startup accelerator in Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of support from Techstars, the Colorado-based uh, accelerator, to do that. Uh, no official affiliation, but we did become one of the earliest members of a, an international group they set up. And we realized that there was this fascinating movement emerging around the world of these so-called startup accelerators. And where it's all coming from is actually the reason I think we're here today, actually, too, is that in the last 10 years, it's become possible to teach entrepreneurship and to systematize innovation. If you want to do something new, there's now method to the madness. Yeah. And if you want to know how to be entrepreneurial in a big company, in your own company, in a charity, in a government organization, we can now teach that. And I'm really inspired by that. It genuinely is something that gets me out of bed every morning because I think that the world is an uncertain place yeah. and entrepreneurship gives you the skills 
to make things happen. To survive as well. Correct. Was it madness back then in 2010? Because put it into the picture, I think Singapore was still a little bit of an exotic location in 2009, 2010. I mean, now it's just phenomenal as a go-to location for people. But back then, 2009, 2010, startups in Singapore, you were a bit on the extreme, weren't you? Did people think you were nuts? I think it was interesting you say that. Uh, the government agencies had already spotted what many economists have seen around the world, which is that ultimately big corporations, traditional businesses, destroy jobs. And they do that because they become more and more efficient and they replace people with boxes and they reduce costs, hmm. which is a natural thing you do. If you actually want new employment, new wealth creation in an in economy, it's, it's entrepreneurs who do that. Sometimes entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs inside large corporations, and sometimes independent entrepreneurs, but they are the wealth creators. So I think on the sort of top level in Singapore, that was recognized. Yeah. What I found super interesting at the time when we set up the, the co-working space was we get these kind of young people come along, say who'd done a law degree, and uh, they'd say, Mr. Hugh, Mr. Hugh, I want to be an entrepreneur. What are the five things I have to do to be an entrepreneur? And I kind of share with them. And then, they, then the story would come out. And they basically say, look, I've just finished my law degree. And dad usually would have said one or two things to them. Either dad would say, son, don't mess around with this entrepreneur thing that we don't understand. Go and be a lawyer. Like, yeah. Forget it. Or, okay, son, you see that Mark Zuckerberg? You got six months. Go make a billion dollars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like no Get pressure, system, yeah. like no pressure at all, and 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 I don't hear that story anymore. You know, so ten years on. So to mm. answer your question, was was it mad? I, what I there was a really interesting moment um, a few years later when uh, the prime minister of Singapore was stood on the steps of the Astana and shared his Sudoku code, right? Yeah, and was surrounded by entrepreneurs. Um, and I and I thought to myself, Meng and I were at that event, and we we thought to ourselves, wow, this is like entrepreneurship going mainstream. Yeah, you know. It's like uh, you might still be the only entrepreneur in the family, but, you know, it's not weird anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not an alternative lifestyle. Um, well, it actually may be, ultimately, because I think entrepreneurship makes you look at the world in a different way. And that's oh, one yeah, of the things true. we can explore from our guests on this show. Yeah, I was saying it from the point that I came from Japan. Mm. And um, obviously, if you know my name, Graham Brown, it's not a very Japanese name, but I lived there a long time. Mm. And I married a Japanese woman and spent a lot of time in the culture. And I felt that entrepreneurship was cool, mm -hmm. but, you know, you might as well be a yoga teacher in terms of acceptability for the family, right? It's yeah. like they're kind of doing it as a phase. There were no real role models, I think, yeah. that people could look to, that people would say, yeah, you can be like this guy. Mm. You know, he didn't do so well. He wasn't a straight A student, but mm -hmm. look what he's doing now. So there's a bit of that going on. And I think the difficulty in starting out, you were in 2009, 2010, a real absence of role models. Like you had the California model that you're importing here. And obviously you learned a lot from tech stars. But what was it like when you were dealing with those youngsters or people that they didn't have anybody to look to apart from maybe Mark Zuckerberg. That must have been tough, wasn't it? I think it was, there were some very successful local entrepreneurs, but they just don't behave or certainly didn't behave at the time in the same way that say American entrepreneurs would behave. Right. So, there, I mean, there are some awesome people here in Singapore who've built businesses and built this country. I would say that deep down in the genes, you know, to get on a boat and come from China or India or whatever and come to this country and build a nation and to do what Singapore has achieved in 50 years is just insanely entrepreneurial. Absolutely. Right? Agreed. 
But that doesn't mean that you kind of stand up on stage, say I'm an entrepreneur, um, start your own podcast. Right. You know, those things weren't natural, but now they are. And, they, and they're done in a way that's uniquely Singaporean, you know. But back then it wasn't. You're absolutely right. There weren't the kind of role models. And when this really came home to me, I mean, we, when we set up JFDI, our startup accelerator, we used to have these weekly open house events. And there was one particular event that really made an impression on me. I was maybe 200 people there, something like that. And there's this kind of uncle, as we call him here in Singapore. You yeah. Know, guy. Old guy. Our age. Our age. Let's, let's just be honest about this, Graham. <laughs> I got called we an uncle are, in the elevator for the first time. Dude, we are uncles. Yeah. We should, we should be proud. Exactly. I'm proud. All right. So let's, let's shout out <laughs> to this, this uncle. <laughs> yeah. So I go up to this uncle, a Chinese guy, and I say to him, like, you know, hey, uncle, you know, what, uh, what's brought you here? And he was looking really sad, like he was about to burst into tears. And I thought, wow, what has happened to this guy? And I, I swear to God, what he said to me was he said, I wish I'd had this. Wow. He was looking around the room. He said, I wish I'd had this. When I started my business 25 years ago, my father told me, you will fail. My mother told me, who do you think you are? Only rich men start businesses. And my brother said to me, when you fail, I will have to feed your children. I mean, whoa. Wow. Right. And this guy had gone, I won't name him, but he'd gone on to build a you know, multi, multi-million dollar business, which has created hundreds and hundreds of jobs here in Singapore. Yeah. So what he saw, uh, and Meng, after I told this story to Meng, my co-founder, and Meng said this thing that still sends shivers down my spine. He said, he's found his tribe. Yeah. You know, and I think what's, what's emerged here in Singapore, there always was, there always have been entrepreneurs here, but it just hasn't been a kind of recognized role, yeah. you know? And, Absolutely. And now it is. And I just think that's fabulous. And I, so I, I, and I, I haven't done that. I, you know, Meng and I were part of a thing at the time mm. that was about creating a community. But what I think is so interesting now and why one reason why I'm so interested to do this podcast with you is because I think we're starting to be able to say, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur in Asia? And sometimes that's about being an outsider. You and I are both outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Entrepreneurs add value because they're outsiders, you know? Yes. I like this conversation. Fresh, fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm an immigrant here. I'm a new Asian you know, that yeah. always makes people laugh when I say that, but it's true. Yeah. Um, this is my home, truly. Um, and um, I'm a permanent resident here. And it's because I'm an outsider that I add value. Yeah, if you were Asian moving to the US, for example, mm -hmm. and setting up life there, people would say you're American, you're an immigrant. So you rightfully can say that you are an immigrant here, a new Asian, right? And you look at all the data about entrepreneurship, and how immigrants are a big factor in all of that. Mm. You know, whether they may be the first generation, even Stephen Jobs was second generation mm -hmm. immigrant, but they've all come from those backgrounds. And it's fascinating, isn't it? What is that? And often it's on the one part, they didn't have a choice. Mm. And the second part is they've got nothing to lose. You know, this is interesting, isn't it? That if you like that conversation, that uncle, he had everything to lose. He had the family reputation, which will go with him to the grave. Right. It'll be at every wedding, totally. every like family birthday, that will be brought up. You cannot walk away from that. You know, everybody talks about limited liability, but there is the family liability, like honor, you know, yeah, yeah. risk and all that stuff. So, but if you come with nothing, you've got nothing to lose. You can just play it all and just totally. hope for the best, right? And being an outsider is an important part 
I, I lived in Japan where there's an actual word for it, gaijin, mm. which is the same in Chinese, I think, outside person, the characters, right? Mm. You will always be gaijin, even though you're the nicest gaijin I've ever met. So tell me, in Japan, is there a word for someone who's become a bit Japanese? Is, that, is there a word for that? <laughs> <coughs> like you know, Japanese tendencies? <laughs> No, it's, it, there are there, there are those people, right? But there's always that sort of circle. Yeah. I, I just asked because I, I, like, I was truly honoured the other day. Like a friend said to me, "Oh, Hugh, you're so Asian. You're Ang Mo Parian." <laughs> right, like, for anyone who's listening, doesn't know Ang Mo means red hair, and it's kind of a it's not derogatory. It's just what we get. You know, Caucasians are called here in Singapore. Ang Mo Parian, half Singaporean, half Ang Mo. You know, I just yeah. thought that, that was that was a really nice thing to say. Actually, does uh, that? I mean, your, your son's grown up here as well. Yeah, My when, son's grown up here as well. Yeah. Does that? He he asked me the other day. He and I didn't know the answer to it. And I thought maybe there wasn't an answer. He said, um, "Dad, what am I?" <laughs> like I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "What what am I? Am I Japanese, Singaporean, or yeah. British?" And I, I mean, the the answer I wanted to give him that wasn't cliched was that you're mm -hmm. a, you're 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 Harry. It's his name, or you're a citizen yeah. of the world. I didn't know there was a less sort of cliched, tacky way of saying it. But I really thought, wow, that's a really great position to be in. But at the same time, you could feel. Maybe I need to know what I am because everybody else is in a box. How do you deal with that? It's it is interesting. And then if you're then if your dad's an entrepreneur, like and everybody else's, you know, mum or dad is working for some big company or something. I mean, we're kind of. <laughs> I like to think that we're both giving our kids, you know, what they need for the future. Yeah. Which I firmly, you know, I, I have this theory that the 19th century belonged to Europe, the 20th century belonged to America, and this is Asia's century. Absolutely. So I wanted my son to grow up. My wife wanted in our. In our in an Asian school, which he's done, he's gone through the public system here, speaking Chinese, which he does. Um, he looks very young, he's blonde and blue-eyed. Um, but to answer your question, you know, what is he? Um, I find it fascinating the way that when you don't give the kids a prompt, they find their own identity. Yeah. A friend the other day was playing PlayStation with his kid or some boxing game. And you know that bit where you have to choose, like, which player are you? You know, And, he's, and the dad said to his son, uh, do you want to be, which of these players do you want to be? And uh, the son said, I want to be the one with the red shorts. And his dad looked at him because like one of the players was a black guy and the other one was a white guy, right. but they were wearing red and blue shorts. And the way the son <laughs> distinguished them is not by that's the color awesome. of the skin. I know, isn't it awesome? He chose them like by the color of the shorts. <laughs> and I just think that's fabulous. And so, I mean, to go back to this thing about, will entrepreneurship be part of my son's identity? I actually had a conversation yesterday with, yeah. with him and my wife kind of looked slightly shocked. My son is really good at board games. He's yeah, really I know, good at he strategy. loves it, right? Yeah, he loves strategy. He would kick my ass. So just when he'd beaten me, like in his game called Catan yesterday, oh, yeah. I said to him, hey, Max, do you want to do you want to do some share trading? <laughs> I thought, you know, to that like, extent, let's monetize this. It's like Catan, yeah. but, with, but money. with money. Yeah, with real money. money. Yeah, you could, you could honor your family, son. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> go trade some shares. So, we, uh, so you know, is, 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 part of his on, is part of his identity entrepreneurial? I think it is, you know, he... Yeah. yeah. But how, how do you teach that? Because, I mean, we, we sort of talked about this off air and I'm really fascinated by what makes entrepreneurs. And mm. there's certain aspects you can teach. Mm -hmm. Like, you've already mentioned that maybe a lot of people are entrepreneurs without realizing it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not sort of startup founders wearing shorts mm -hmm. and sandals and maybe they're entrepreneurs within organizations. Maybe the fact, like you say, somebody came from one country to another mm -hmm. country, they're an entrepreneur already. By default, they've taken a big risk. And yet, I, I, I have a theory and prove me wrong if you've got the data, but I think that most entrepreneurs are quite weird in the sense that I think they've come from positions of you talked about trauma. I talk mm. about pain, which mm -hmm, is the same mm -hmm, thing. It's mm -hmm. like they've had either screwed up like upbringings or, mm. you know, they're unprivileged or, 
but then there are, for example, that super successful families have produced super successful entrepreneurs. There's those. Yeah, I think that uh, you look at, for example, like the music world, pretty much every artist who's amazing has had pretty crappy childhood, right? Totally. That's, that's the reason. Yeah. I mean, we can think of some really big examples yeah. like the Michael Jacksons and so on. Um, and then you think, well, how do you teach that? Because you don't want to re-engineer that for somebody to make them a great entrepreneur, do you? No, that's a really good point. So I think there's two, unpacking, I think there's two things there. It's how do you teach entrepreneurship and then what is it that motivates people to be entrepreneurs? I'm going to give you an analogy. So say um, you go on a drawing course, right? And you learn to have a go at sketching or something like that for a right. weekend, right? Does that make you an artist? I'm not sure it does. I think while you're drawing, you are being artistic, right? Yeah. Does it make you an artist? Is that your whole identity? You know, we've got all sorts of questions around identity in our time now, haven't we? And people, it's usually based around people's gender or their race or their or their sexuality or something. But but also around what people do. You know, am I am I an artist because I draw some pictures? Am I an entrepreneur because I took a risk at work? Well, maybe the answer to that is yes. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do it in the studio because I, I I don't want to embarrass you, even though we're good friends. But you know, I could try dancing a bit around the studio here now. Does that make me a dancer? Yeah. For the moment I'm dancing, I'm a, I am a dancer, right? <clears throat> Not a very good one. In fact, a rather podgy, like, British <laughs> married one. You You're still a dancer, though. But I'd be, yeah, by your own Dad dancer. Pick yourself. I'd be a dad dancer. <laughs> dad so I have an identity. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so with entrepreneurship, I think the thing... Barrett, you do not want to watch this. Our engineer is... No, this is something... Smiling you know, away. Luckily, you know, the, the camera cuts off about <laughs> here because you just don't want to see this kind of this guy dad dancing. Anyway, going back to the topic. <laughs> so entrepreneurship... Um, how do you teach it? Uh, there's a really interesting woman called Hilary Austin who wrote a book about um, artistry. And, you know, I think there's some science to entrepreneurship and there's some art to it. Yeah. And she said there are three parts of artistry. Other people have commented on this too, but she's, you know, there's a, there's a part of it which is like book learning. So you can learn about, you know, sales techniques or yeah. money or stuff like that, right? That's book learning. There's a second part of it which is purely experiential. So if I'm an artist and I work with clay... When I put this kind of clay in a fire that looks like that and I leave it in for that long, it comes out like that. And I learn through experience. Right. And a lot of entrepreneurship is, is experiential. So a lot of the teaching I do at NUS and other places, National University of Singapore, and through JFDI and other places, is all experiential training. We deliberately put people into an environment where they need to be entrepreneurial. And then there's a third part of the learning, which is Hilary Austin calls directional learning. So, for example, if you are a Muslim artist, I believe that you don't represent the human form. You know, a, a lot right. of a lot of uh, Muslim Islamic art is very geometric. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, there aren't sure. human figures in it, and that's I, I believe that comes from the, the Quran. So, in the same way, um, as an entrepreneur, there will be some direction, some insight. So, if you are a um, a food and beverage entrepreneur, yeah. there will be a particular group of things that you focus on. If you are a, uh, a, 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 a an aircraft and you know entrepreneur, and you're running yeah. an airline, it'll be different. So those three skills: book learning, experientially, so that's how we teach it. But going back to your other point, which was about you know, why would someone become an entrepreneur? This is something that fascinates me because it's, I guess, it's partly me understanding myself. You yeah. Know? One of the first people to study entrepreneurship was a, a Harvard professor called Howard Stevenson. And around 1965, he started doing a bunch of studies. And you've got to think of America in the 50s and 60s as being a place a bit like Japan is, yeah. say, dominated by big corporations. You know, I think the most illustrious job that a young person can get in Japan is working for Japan Railways. Yeah. Still, which seems, you know, bizarre from where I come from. You wouldn't want to work for 
British Rail and its successes. <laughs> and no offence, guys. Um, and what um, what he realized, what he said was, you know, when he started studying entrepreneurship in the in the sixties, entrepreneurship was viewed as um, a job for failures, for losers, right, yeah, dropouts, the, yeah. dropouts. He said, you know, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs were viewed as clinically insane and addicted to risk. That was his quote. And there was a book written, interesting enough, about two years, about well, 1964, I think it was, a book came out from a couple of researchers. They, they called it The Enterprising Man. Mm. And they wrote it as a kind of a parallel to a book uh, coming a couple of years earlier called The Organization Man. The Organization Man was all about the way America was becoming the sort of madmen type society with very, yeah. very structured jobs, corner offices, everything that we now think of as kind of big corporate life. The Organization Man was sort of saying, hey, have we lost something out of American individualism? And so the enterprising man was a research done a couple of years later to say, actually, there are these people called entrepreneurs. And interestingly enough, when you looked at that, I've read that book recently, I pulled it out of the reference library at NUS, and it catalogues a series of entrepreneurs, all of whom, exactly as you were saying, have all got ad what we now call adverse childhood experiences. They had terrible relationships with their fathers often. They usually had some kind of trauma, physical, emotional, sexual trauma in their past. And... For the next sort of few years, nobody really explored that side of entrepreneurship. Yeah. In the mid-1990s, a couple of researchers called Cox and Jennings looked at two groups of people, some people who'd set up business units inside large corporations, about 50 of them. None of them had any adverse childhood experiences. And they looked at a bunch of independent entrepreneurs, like well over half had. So there is some pattern here. And just more recently, in the last three or four years, there's a really interesting set of research coming together that's suggesting entrepreneurship is a way of earning a living and a way of finding an identity which often fits people who are sort of neurotypical uh, i can think of two really successful dyslexic uh, right. investors here in singapore for example one of the reasons why they're great investors is because from an early age they weren't burying their heads in books they were talking to people yeah like you and i are trying to talk to each other because that's how they primarily coping mechanism right that's yeah. how they got ahead they're fantastic emotional intelligence yeah and then i know other people who've you know the who've got adhd mm. um and there are people who've got post-traumatic stress disorder um you know that's something i suffered from when i was five years old i stuck a pair of scissors down the back of an electric socket and nearly died um, blimey yeah is that I, where your entrepreneurial spirit came well from? I, I can now talk about that. i mean i couldn't talk about that two or three years ago i had some fantastic help too. i didn't real hadn't realized that was blocking me that bizarre it's like wow. 45 years ago but actually, I now recognize it explains a whole bunch of things about why I am the way I am. And, um, you know, PTSD is something that's not very recognized here in Singapore. Yeah. It's not that common. You know, there was a very traumatic time during the Japanese occupation, but we, we haven't had something like a whole bunch of soldiers coming back from a war like happened in America with the yeah. war. They recognize trauma. Trauma is, I think, one of the most common reasons why people change their attitude to risk. Um, I was talking to one of my mentees the other day, a, a Vietnamese entrepreneur, and I told her this, and she said, well, you know what happened to me, don't you? And I said, no. And she said, well, like, my family tried to escape nine times from Vietnam. We were boat people. I was in an open boat at sea for, like, weeks, and she actually ended up growing up in Canada. And I just thought, whoa, there's another one, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of people. I'm not, so to answer your question, do you need to go through trauma? No, but I think what you do do, and this is really interesting, and when we set up JFDI, we deliberately created a structure, a 100-day intensive program, where we would push people to their limits, and we always had a, a, a counsellor 
on board and that was needed every time we ran the program mm. and there and that's based on some fairly detailed research into understanding what it takes for people to change their world view uh i don't know if this is this too technical no this is good is keep going uh there's a this is a theory okay so I'm, I'm not a psychologist this is all just experiential stuff um a woman called Elizabeth Kubler, I think it's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, put together a thing called the bereavement cycle that many people oh, probably yeah. will be familiar yeah. with. You know, when you, when you someone dies close to you, you first of all feel shock, and then you feel denial, anger, resignation, acceptance. You go through this pattern typically, and it happens too if you lose your wallet. <laughs> you also go through the same, you know, <laughs> or process. your job. Yeah, yeah, and actually, the same is true when you learn. When you go through a, a profound experience where yeah. you genuine your worldview changes so it's not like you learn oh i've you know i've been doing been making vanilla ice cream now i'm going to make strawberry ice cream that that's not a profound change but going from making vanilla ice cream to um feeding a third world disaster area kitchen that would be a change in a profound yeah, worldview. Yeah, and when people go through a learning experience like that they typically go through an emotional experience. And, it, and I don't know, it's not clear from the research I've read whether you need to go through that sort of sense of bereavement, letting go of your old view of the world and taking on board a new view of the world. But mm. there does seem to be some link in the psychology there between the, the sort of unlearning and the relearning. And letting go of certainty, I think, is one of the biggest things for entrepreneurs. When you've survived something traumatic does change your attitude to risk it's not that you take stupid risks at all a lot of people think oh entrepreneurs are just massive risk takers yeah. they're not they're very measured risk takers they understand that taking a risk is okay you're not going to die yeah yeah i've been there i didn't die and and it's important if i'm not going to do something new i've got to take a risk and actually that's okay so i think there is emerging now in the research and it'd be lovely as yeah. we go through this series explore and that and hear from other people as well yeah. that whole idea of i mean wow i mean what a revelation with your scissors in the the socket, socket. Yeah, yeah i mean how that changes things not but recommended if you want to become an entrepreneur no it's not a great <laughs> sort of onboarding process mm -hmm. but that I, mean, I guess what we're trying to get to is that may maybe trauma helps people become entrepreneurs faster in the sense that they have more energy mm. and more reasons to make it happen. Yeah, it's not a requirement. Mm. Obviously, you wouldn't want that on anybody. And yet, you talk about this letting go of uncertainty. I'm really interested in this because, I mean, I have a theory that entrepreneurship is like, I mean, it's a skill rather than a career, right? We talked about that. But it's like entrepreneurship is like travel. Mm -hmm. You can go through the life being mm. a tourist or you can be a traveler. And I think entrepreneurship and travel are very similar in the sense if you go and live in a country mm. like we're both doing now mm. in a country different from the one of your birth, you have to let go of uncertainty because everything that you ever knew got challenged. Right. 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 You know, like if you crack a joke about British TV, like people are like, what was that? And so you lose those sort of cultural touch points. Then there's the food. Then there's the fact that you look different. I mean, increasingly, mm. Singapore is less of a challenge. But, you mm. know, anywhere you go, you have to let go of uncertainty. And by doing that, you survive and then you thrive. You know, if, if you hear people that move to countries and they don't survive and they go back home or they bitch about the mother country, the hosts mm. and so on, because they can't let go of certainty. This is how we did it back home. Mm. And... I catch myself doing this from time to time is like I switch into my I have these rights attitude like you know 
I lived in Spain for a bit, just a detour, but I lived mm. in Spain. One of the things Spanish people tend to do, and it's unfair to like bring them out, but just to kind of like, exactly, it's a bit of a joke really, is that they stand in doorways <laughs> and talk to people. They love talking and mm. I love Spanish people and mm. it's a fantastic culture. <laughs> but you're trying to get somewhere and somebody's chatting with somebody in the doorway. And if you live somewhere long enough, it starts to bug you. And then you sort of do the, my rights thing. I have a right to walk through this doorway. Mm. And that's the certainty part. And I think as I've got a bit older, I've got a bit better with that. This is my theory about travel and entrepreneurship. That oh, there's right. some parallels. Have you seen that in yourself coming here in Singapore? Totally. And I think, you know, I want to pay credit here to all my local friends who are entrepreneurs because I think it's much tougher. If you if you look local and you are different in the way that you look at the world, you're going to find it really awkward. I mean, for example, I have a friend who's Korean-American, so he looks very Korean, right? But he grew up in America. He tried being in Korea. And uh, it was right. a total disaster because people would expect him to, you know, exhibit the body language and the behaviors of a Korean. And, you know, yeah. I hear this also from Japanese friends who've kind of been away from Japan and they go back like you're never the same, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so I think in a way, at least you and I, it's kind of easier for us because at least we look different. So people kind of expect you to say something different. It's a twilight world, isn't it? Which yeah. you exist in. And, and, and then what I've learned to do is to embrace those. When you get that thing, when you first come as an immigrant uh, to a country, you get past the honeymoon period. And then, like you say, you get someone standing in a doorway and you think, that's not right. Yeah, that's the words, right? <laughs> and, and then you say to yourself, actually, it's not that it's not right. It's just different. Yeah. And actually, maybe that's an opportunity. You know, maybe someone's standing that maybe, okay, this guy wants to talk. Actually, you know, do I really need to be rushing in my day? Maybe I should do the Spanish manana manana thing. What would it yeah. be like if I did that? <clears throat> I had this in the, in the UK. I moved from London, like very go, go, go to Bath in the West Country where they do talk like that, my lover, or eat me handsome. And the guy who built my house was an amazing guy. He got married again, age 65, to a 30-year-old woman. Um, so from Mondays until sort of Friday, he's like a uh, builder. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, he's a crystal healer, quite hands-on with the ladies, I think. Wow. Yeah, and <laughs> very good crystal healer. Yeah. 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 And David is this fantastic, sort of slow West Country guy. And I knew that whenever he'd knock on the door and come around for tea, like that's my afternoon written off. So I, I, the first time it happened, I was sitting there thinking, oh, David, like, dude, I've got to do work. You know, like, I've got to do work. I'm not like semi-retired. Like, yeah. I haven't got a queue of women looking for crystal therapy like you have. <laughs> I've got to earn a living here. And, and actually, I learned to tell myself, look, when David comes around, let's sit down and let's talk. And I think part of entrepreneurship is, you know, one of the things I try and teach uh, – my students is look for surprises, look for the yeah. things that don't fit in. You know, when you see something that is awkward, that doesn't fit into a pattern, that's usually a clue that there's either a problem that needs solving or an opportunity that you can seize. And, and most of the time, of course, in school, we're not trained to do that. Like we're trained, especially when I work with engineers, you have these guys and like, they're all trained to kind of take this mess in front of me and I make it all quickly as possible, go to E equals MC squared, like neat, you know, small. Um, and they converge. And anyone creative, any artist will tell you that if you want to create something new, you've got to splurge before you converge. You yeah. know? You've got to kind of let things go loose. You've got to be comfortable with the discomfort. And then you've got to stand back from this sort of messy situation. You've got to say, okay, there's a bunch of opportunities here. That isn't what I expected, but hey, that's good. And then you can kind of start converging on a new reality. And that's uh, actually, that's what I love about the teaching, because especially the work I do with 
uh, often postgraduate scientists and engineers and doctors and people is they they're very used to being the smartest person in the room who comes yeah, to the answer quickly and what i teach them to do is to be like an immigrant i teach them to say hey you know what just open your eyes a bit look for the stuff that doesn't fit your theory of the world look for the stuff that pisses you off look for the stuff that really surprises you, you think why do they do that because mm. that is your clue to a new future and a new opportunity um so can you teach that going back to your question earlier on i, I think you can um, by putting people in situations when they're forced to do that. Simple examples, a lot of the courses I run at NUS will have people come along and I'll often set them a challenge, like how, why, how might we help older Singaporeans feel comfortable about retirement? Mm. Right? And most people assume, oh, I want to retire and like sit around by the pool and kind of not do anything. So I say to them, well, actually go and talk to some of the uncles and aunties around here who are still working in their 60s and 70s. And what amazes them when they actually have a conversation with those people is they discover that actually they love working. Yeah, yeah, they exactly. Keeping active. <laughs> They're keeping active. They're keeping their brains going. Social. They're communicating with people. Yeah. So, so often times, you know, the most common reason that startups fail is because people launch something that no one cares about. Yeah. No, how true that is. And when you talk to people and when you open your eyes to the surprises, that's when you see, you know, open your eyes to the surprise. Maybe that should be one of our kind of <laughs> little cheesy no, mantras. Yeah, no, no. You don't like that one? I, I do like the idea, but not as, a, like as okay. a slogan or anything like that. <laughs> I think we should have like a whiteboard where we collect like cheesy, cheesy phrases. Like, okay, and then well, there's no such thing as a bad idea. So let's Thank go there. You. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, let's very start right. with that. I think as well is that, I mean, I want to come to the point about what we want to talk about in this podcast as well, just sort of like rounding it up is that um, entrepreneurship, people might be listening to this and thinking, is that me? And I think there's a big section of society who could benefit from these skills that weren't traditionally under the spotlight of entrepreneurship or traditional totally. programs. Yep. And a big part of this is corporates as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about these skill set of entrepreneurship, like dealing with uncertainty. You mm. imagine every single corporate now is now thinking about digital transformation or mm -hmm. change management mm -hmm. or losing their job or yep. upskilling. Yep. It's all about that now, right? And and there's you, a reason for that. You know, yeah. if, you look, if you look at the 1960s, you look at the average time that, let's say, S&P 500 company was in the S&P 500. You know, we're talking about companies like General Electric, these big kind of household names. They were there on average for 50, 60, 70 years in the 1960s. Yeah. That's now down to, depending on whose research, you've got between 12 and like 15 years. Yeah. So today's, of today's big household name companies that we, you know, they're written on the equipment all around us, we buy their stuff. In 10 years time, 40% of them are just not going to be there. Right, like I mean, you and I are old enough, for example, to remember a company called Xerox. Yeah, right. And yeah, they Xerox, did some great innovation, right? And, and Park, they, yeah, yeah, Park recently they, they, they developed the mouse and the Windows system that we all use and that kind of stuff. Didn't make any money out of it, but they did develop it. Um, now, Xerox was like the Google of its day. In 1959, they launched the Xerox 914 copier, and it grew 40% year on year as a photocopying uh, system. And and then they kind of not crashed and burned, but they just kind of faded away. The Japanese came along, right? Well, yeah. they are the competitors. The patents ran out. Yeah. But also, of course, life moved on. We don't use paper so much as we used to. It's Kodak, isn't it? Exactly it's the, the same Kodak story, story right? right. Yeah. So when you say, why do people need these skills? Yeah. You know, the Kodak moment, as exactly. they used to call it, is absolutely iconic. Every large company is destined to hit the ground at some point, unless it reinvents itself. I find, especially here now, I mean, 
you know, where we are right here, right now, who, you know, here's an interesting thing. When I applied for uh, my employment pass and in um, Singapore, so as an entrepreneur, you come here and you get a work permit, it lists on the website the businesses we're not interested in. <laughs> and obviously, it's going to be some of the obvious, like fast food takeaway business. If you're going to run that in Singapore, we're not interested. But, but I know you wanted to run a massage parlor. Yeah, exactly. They turned that, that They turned that down. <laughs> the other ones were... Um, taxi mm -hmm. business and um, karaoke business mm -hmm. obviously and it's interesting that like now if you look at where we are like, I mean that that's not a, a criticism of Singapore that's just like that's on every website and every government website for employment passes and yet um, taxi businesses mm -hmm. Grab Gojek you know these are some of the biggest like hyper growth companies out there okay so I'm going to pick that up. I don't think Grab is a taxi business not anymore and I don't think it ever was conceived as one. And we can probably pick that apart in another episode. Well, I'd like to hear it. So so my own view is that what Grab is, is it's the equivalent of WeChat and WePay and everything else. That if for anyone who hasn't been to China and seen this, you, know, you can go weeks in China without touching cash. Yeah. You have a totally integrated system where everything from buying airline tickets to booking taxis or paying for food or whatever. Getting your passport. Everything is yeah. all done through the one app. Now, that works in a society where there aren't so many issues with data privacy as there would be in Europe, for example. But uh, clearly, there are opportunities to do something like that. If it works in China, it will probably work in other parts of Asia. And, and I think it's fairly clear that the these major platform businesses only have the valuations they have because investors perceive that they have the capacity to grow into those things. Yeah. The thing about running a taxi a ride-sharing business, not a taxi business, a ride-sharing business, is you onboard a shed load of people really quickly you find out where they live, you find out where they go to work, you find out how much they're prepared to spend, you know. Just by using any of those ride-sharing services, we are disclosing to yeah. companies like Grab and Uber who we are, where we are, which is a fantastic data base, data base, boom, boom, on which to build a business that could be a kind of framework for our lives. Mm. So so going back to it, I think you're, the, you're, I think you're absolutely right. There are a bunch of businesses which are what um, the economists would call small to medium-sized enterprises, like running a little taxi firm or running a, you know, whatever. And those businesses do create employment, just like setting up another legal practice or just another graphic design shop. But the things that will transform the economy are innovation-driven enterprises. There's a professor at MIT, Bill Owlett, who's written some great stuff about this. Um, it's innovation-driven entrepreneurship, not just entrepreneurship on its own. That's what right. will transform the, the, the lives that we have and the countries that we live in. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. This is a, a big conversation. Hopefully we can sort of dive a little bit deeper into it in coming episodes as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about entrepreneurship within organizations as well, because yeah. I think that's the next wave, isn't it? It really is. You know, the, Especially here, you know, we've got 7,000 multinationals on this island. Right. The island was kind of through the nation building period. It was designed by the Economic Development Board to be optimized for foreign direct investment. And that's why we have a fantastic array of you know, world world famous brands here. Um, if you're going to do an entre entrepreneurship here, I don't think you can ignore those guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are a, a force to bring on board <clears throat> if you've already got a business or they're a force to work with if you haven't created one yet. The struggles within these organizations are going to be bigger, aren't they, really? Because you're now dealing, like though you're going back to your uncle, mm. you're now dealing with people who are really going up against a system that worked. Right. Maybe it doesn't work so much now. Like 
getting a career, getting a good job in a law firm, mm -hmm. as an example. Yet now we have these people who are dealing with this struggle internally, which is we're making money. We have a big brand. We're a bank. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not in the business of taking risk. Yeah. Yet we need to change this. Otherwise, Skype models of transfer wise, etc., are going to come in and eat up and Alibaba are going to come and eat up mm -hmm. and Tencent are going to pick and choose all the profitable bits of our business and leave us just with the core, which is the boring retail bank, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to happen. That's your Kodak moment. It's like, how did you go bankrupt and <laughs> gradually? And then all of a sudden, so this is going to be really interesting. How do you, Who's doing this internally? Which companies are getting it right? Who are those sort of internal change agents exactly. and how are they doing it? Th those are the stories I want to get out. I, how do we get those out? Because it's going to be tough, isn't it? Like trying to find those people. I think we're starting to see people who are willing to share stories now. I mean, I, I, you know, there are some people who are doing it as corporations. So, for example, DBS here has done a, a great job of kind of, you know, it's a legacy bank. And they've, in my view, what they seem to have done is kind of grown like a tail on the dog, you know, to build a digital bank in India. And I think what's probably going to happen now is that tail is going to grow into a new dog, you know, because yeah. it's easy. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't know how far I can stretch this dog thing. But I'm doing quite Tail well. wags the dog. Tail, dog. Very yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. And it will be the tail, the, the new digital tail wagging the new DBS probably. And there's quite a lot of evidence to show that that sort of strategy for large corporations is one of the yeah. most common successful strategies. The internal so, startup, right? So to answer yeah. your question earlier on, what you don't try and do is you don't try and take a risk-averse uh, business, which for very good reasons is full of people who are paid to say no. And you don't take people who are have gone all their careers in minimizing risk and try and put them in a mindset that's about maximizing opportunity. Yeah. So... Uh, you yeah. take take people from that. I mean, that's the, the point, isn't it? That I mean, what we're seeing with that sort of internal startup model is like that you don't mess around with the core. You leave the, the mm. cash cow mm. and then you build this tail outside of it and have the people who want to be part mm. of that because mm. not everybody wants to do entrepreneurship. Totally. And I, I think it'd be lovely if we could invite him on the show here. I mean, Wolfgang Bayer, for example, uh, now I think at Lux Asia, but was chief exec of SingPost brought in when SingPost, like every postal service around the world was in a bad way kind of 10 years ago uh wolfgang was brought in one of the first things he did uh was to write to every employee as i understand it and basically say look you won't get fired for trying a new idea that doesn't work yeah and then basically giving people the opportunity to say to show whether they were interested in entrepreneurship or not and innovation and the ones that were interested were put into a kind of a new unit in the corner a tail on the dog if you like in a separate building yeah and basically told, look, guys, it's, it's you know, the, the business is going to carry on. We'll carry on doing the deliveries and everything, but we need you to invent, you know, the new SingPost. And if you think about what SingPost is now, it's very different than when I arrived in Singapore. We have these very innovative uh, delivery um, boxes, um, you know, the, the, the things that uh, the, that you can do, pick up delivery from on the way home. Uh, I think SingPost were among the first companies to do that here. They've been experimenting with drones. as a bunch of things. So I think it's interesting the way... You know, and that is real transformation. Yeah, um, I don't know whether they'd agree with this. It'd be interesting to hear, hear from them. But I think it seems to me SingPost is more of a fulfillment company now, like a last mile fulfillment company and less of a kind of a postal service. It still does deliver mail, you know, but but it's adapted. It's exploited the strength it had of a local delivery network, hyper-local delivery network, and, and made something new out of that. <clears throat> I'm fascinated to see where they carry on taking that because they've done very well to turn around from a, a difficult situation. Yeah. 
and not most exciting business in the world either. I mean, it's obvious if you're doing AI or, I mean, I'm sure there's AI in it, but an AI native company and so on, building it from scratch, yet a company with a huge legacy. Totally. And I think, I think you've touched on another really interesting thing we could pick up on, which is sometimes it's the most boring things where the interesting opportunities happen. Yeah. There's a company I wish we'd brought into JFDI uh, called Payroll Hero. Um, it's a Canadian Philippines company. Yeah. And they took the most boring part of a company, like running the payroll. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone listening to this had that experience. When I started work, we used to have to have a card. Like you'd come in and there's this rack of yeah. cards and you, this big brass handle and you go like clunk. And you'd punch card. Punch card and yeah. you'd punch in and punch out at lunchtime and then back in or whatever. They, they looked at that chore and said, how can we make that into a positive experience? So they looked at call centers and a business process outsourcing centers, places where there was a big turnover of staff, typically 20, 30% a year. And they said, how can we reduce the churn of staff by making arriving at work a positive experience? So now what happens, if you're a member of a company using one of these things, is you, you arrive, your smartphone knows that you've arrived at work because it has GPS, right? It's not like your friend could fake it. I suppose your friend could take your phone in. Mm, handle that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then it and then it tells you like you go through the door and it basically says, um, "Hey, there's a special offer today. You know, the, if if you can get this much done by lunchtime, there's an extra twenty five dollars bonus. By the way, don't forget that your colleague has her birthday and there's like a that's cool whatever thing at yeah. lunchtime. And so it turns it creates a sort of social network around the place of work. So by taking something that was really dull and a kind of a bummer of down experience and turning it yeah. into something positive. I like that because yeah. it's not obvious, is it? Exactly. Because yeah. they can think of the obvious applications that yeah. you could work with, but that is cool. So let's put the call out there. JFDI podcast. We're interested in talking to the entrepreneurs and you don't have to be the Stanford dudes. You mm -hmm. can be internal entrepreneurs. You can be the change makers, the risk takers. Yeah. Entrepreneurship rather than entrepreneurs in, in a sense that people who are creating innovation within organizations or mm. even on the outside of the organization as well. And you could be in a boring mm. industry. This is fine. We want actually the more boring, the better. Well, and it's funny you say that. I mean, you know, I've been working with corporates for the last three or four years and the ones that are the ones that have kind of a long time scale, like real estate companies, yeah. energy companies, insurance companies, those are the ones that are actually doing some of the most interesting stuff in entrepreneurship and innovation because they have the long-term long timescale to do yeah. it, you know, that view. Uh, yeah, I think it's really, and what I would also love to explore, if I can add to your list, is, you know, we, we hear a lot from America, God bless it, and there is a model of entrepreneurship there, but this is Asia and we do things differently here. Uh, speaking as a new Asian. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested in hearing from people from different cultures, different backgrounds. When you, you know, which parts have you picked up out of all of the kind of rah, rah, rah entrepreneurship thing, you know? Um, yeah, that'd be cool. Um, which parts of it work, which parts of it don't? Um, maybe there will be some uniquely, you know, we're starting to see really uniquely different Chinese fintech businesses now. Are we starting to see different spins on what it means to be an entrepreneur, how you do it? how you explain it to your family, how you yeah. get rewarded from it by your boss who's risk-averse. You know, how do you how do you work all that stuff? Yeah. I'd love to unpack that with people who are listening. It's cool. Those, those are the stories. Those are the role models that create change, sort of going back full circle to the beginning. Because yeah. once you put those role models out there and they look and sound a little bit like you, it makes it possible. And Totally. And, you know, and there's a line here, and I have to credit Meng Wong, my co-founder, on this. He came up with this line for JFDI, which is, you know, entrepreneurship will always be difficult 
but it doesn't have to be lonely. Yeah. If you think back to that Chinese guy, the old guy who, you know, who recognized that we brought a community together at JFDI, I think I, I would love that to happen through this podcast. I would love to talk with people who've perhaps been a first time entrepreneur in their family or their firm or their business unit. How has it been for you? Yeah. Um, what do you recommend for people? You know, if you knew now, if you knew back then what you now know, how would you have done things differently? If we can share this stuff, we can help everyone move forward. Um, and the wonderful thing about sharing that experience is none of it is, um, uh, you don't lose anything by sharing it. Everybody moves forward faster. So Yeah. We planted the flag, put the call out there. Hugh Mason, Graham Brown. This is JFDI podcast kicking off. And let's uh, hope, there's just you and me at the moment, Let's hope the the tribe grows. Comes, comes, gather, talk yeah, to us, guys. Yeah, exactly. We plant the flag, let them rally round, and um, yeah, let's let's cause a ruckus. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Hugh, it's great. I, I love the uh, the energy that you bring today, and the conversation and the stories. It's most welcome, and I feel good to see you back where you belong. You know, and I think that that's unfinished business <laughs> <laughs> from. Age five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, that's our, the narrative is yeah. to keep going. Let, let's keep that energy strong. And let's, um, I suppose if anybody's interested, we'll put all our, we'll put all our LinkedIn details in yeah, the show yeah. notes and just reach out and Please. say, hey, you don't want to talk. We're signing out. JFDI. Great talking. Number man. one. <laughs> talk to us, guys. Thank you for listening to the JFDI podcast. Hope you have enjoyed this episode. 